Eri Marvin Gaye, and this is episode um, 91 of The Rock Show on March 2100. And um, Mike, what you got for me about Marvin Gaye again? Okay, uh, you know, Marvin Gaye is, is, is one of the most legendary figures in music. Uh, he was probably Motown's biggest artist ever. Uh, him and Diana Ross, I would say, are the, the two biggest ever. Uh, for 20 years, the guy dominated the charts, the R&B charts and the, and the Billboard pop charts. Um, very influential to all kinds of people. Uh, of course, R&B, but also bands like the Rolling Stones covered his music. Uh, bands like the Searchers in England, uh, they covered his music. Um, he was loved by all people. And he's a very tragic figure. In music, unfortunately, he died tragically at the hands of his father. Uh, we're going to talk about that. He and had demons. He had he fucking had, demons. He had demons. He had drug problems. He had uh, just an overall, uh, I would say the man was, was insecure in his life. And it's a shame because he really was at, on top of the world at times, you know, with, with number one albums and, and, and successful tours. But... He just didn't love himself. And the expression, you got to love yourself before you can love anybody else, is kind of really personified in Marvin Gaye. Oh, yeah. He, dude, I, well, those documentaries, that, so I never realized that was a tragic figure he was. And how much cocaine he liked. <laughs> yeah, it's a hell of a drug, right? Um, yeah, holy you shit. You know, he, he had problems with that. And, uh, but, you know, he came from uh, an abusive <laughs> background with his with his childhood and, and even his whole life, really problems with his father. Um, yeah. I mean, he had this amazing voice, amazing talent. He could write songs. He could play different instruments. Uh, but you know, he, like you say, he, he had demons and, you know, eventually the, these things would come to a head and it would, it would cut short his life at the age of 45, but he left behind, you know, an amazing, uh, a piece of music, you know, so much music. Uh, the What's Going On album, I think, is is one of the greatest albums ever recorded. Oh yeah, in, that, in my opinion. That that album is good. And the, and the funny thing is, which I never knew, he started singing at an early age. Oh yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Um, yeah. His, I mean, his father was like a Bible beating. Like his father was over religious. Well, yeah. I mean, his father was a preacher. Okay? Yeah, and and we're gonna talk about that in a second. Um, but. Uh, I just think, uh, yeah, I mean, his father was abusive and, and that really played into how he looked at himself as a man, how he had his, how he dealt with uh, his relationships with women and his friends and stuff. Yeah, and was, just, wow. just how he lived his life, you know, he was always kind of on the edge. You know, and, the, and he suffered from depression too. Oh yeah, did you notice it was Rick James that gave him his Grammy? <laughs> yes, 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 for the sexual healing uh, well, you, song. How much cocaine you think those two motherfuckers uh, did after that? Probably in I the think back. You'd fucking wheelbarrow, probably. Okay. <laughs> and then you told Richard Pryor in there. Those three motherfuckers. Oh my god! Oh my god! So all right, all right so let's get started. Yep. Okay. Uh, Marvin Gaye was born Marvin Pence Gaye Jr. on April 2nd, 1939 in Washington, D.C. Uh, his parents were Marvin Gaye Sr. He was a church minister most of his life. And his mom's name was Alberta Gaye, who worked as a domestic worker. 
his first home was in the very poor section of Washington called the Southwest Waterfront. Uh, he was the second oldest of the couple's four children that they had. He had two sisters, Jeannie and Ziola, and one younger brother named Frankie Gay, who he was very close with. Uh, he also had two half-brothers, uh, Michael Cooper, his mother's son from a previous relationship, and there was an Antoine Carey Gay, who was born as a result of his father's extramarital affairs. Mm. Yeah. So Marvin Gaye's father was a Pentecostal preacher for a church called the House of God. Uh, this church was, was very unique in the aspect that it took most of its Pentecostal uh, teachings from Hebrew Pentecostalism, which meant that not only did it look at things from the New Testament Christian point of view, it looked at things from the Old Testament point yes. of view, too. You don't see too many churches like that. Nah. Um, they were very strict. Uh, there was a lot of rules in that church and dress codes and you know behavioral codes and stuff, and conduct was, was very controlled. Um, Marvin started singing at the age of four, okay, uh, in the church choir. And, you know, through his childhood and, and up until his really when he started his career, he was just encouraged by everybody. Listen, you have a great voice. You have to make a career out of this. Um, even at four years old, he was told that, you, you know, you, you have this amazing voice. Keep singing. So as a child, singing was one of really the only things that, that gave him a lot of pleasure. Uh, his father was very strict. Um, his father was verbally abusive to his mother, um, mentally abusive. His father was physically abusive with the kids. Uh, he used to say, um, spare the rod and spoil the child, that expression. And, uh, he didn't spare the rod. Okay. Uh, these, these kids were beaten for just about anything. Okay, and it's it's tragic. Um, Marvin would be beaten for, you know, being scared of getting beaten. <laughs> okay, so it, it, it really was uh, was a sad thing. And singing was was really one of the only things that he enjoyed, and he really did enjoy it a lot. But um, his father seemed to almost be jealous of him, even as oh, a yeah yeah uh, he would bring Marvin into singing the choir, and Marvin would get a lot of attention. And the attention would no longer be on Marvin Sr. And uh, that was something his father didn't like. So, you know, his mother actually many, many years later had done an interview. Um, I think it was actually before Marvin died. So it's kind of interesting that she would even say this. But she did say that she felt that her husband never loved Marvin. He probably did. Because he was that he, like yeah, he didn't want him. Uh, when he was born, he wasn't wanted. And... Uh, I think that he probably never loved the kid. But the mother, the mother loved him. He had yes. big love for his mother. The mother was pretty much his parent that he loved, well, to, you know? Yeah, I mean, his, his, his mother's love was his refuge. Yeah. Okay. Uh, if he was being abused by his father, he would run to his mother. You know? And uh, that's, that's how he was. You know something I learned? I never realized that he went to the U.S. Air Force and got a general dis discharge. I thought that was amazing. That I, yeah, I never well, knew that about him. Right, right. I'll get into that in a second because that's kind of, it has to do with the abuse that he was getting. Yeah. Um, 
by the time he got to junior high, he he began to uh, take singing very seriously. He joined yes. the junior the, the Randall Junior High Glee Club. He was kind of the leader there. He was very popular. Um, in '54, the family moved to the East Capitol Dwellings Housing Projects in the Capitol View section of Washington D.C. Uh, he attended the local high school. Uh, he actually ended up in Cardozo High School. <laughs> where he joined two doo-wop vocal groups at the time. One was called the Dippers, and one was called the DC Tones. This was the mid-50s. Doo-wop was, was becoming Huge. very popular. Right. Yep. And his relationship with his father would get even worse at this point because his father didn't approve of that kind of music. No. Uh, he felt it was the devil's music and that kind of stuff. Him and the devil. The father yeah. and the devil. Yeah. <laughs> now, arguments were happening often. And his father used to throw him out a lot when he was in high school. So when he was 17, and this goes to the point you were just making, uh, in 1956, he dropped out of high school. And he joined the Air Force at age 17. And it really was just to get away from his father, all right, and his, the family life that he had. Uh, one thing that has to be mentioned, and it's, it's you know, very strange, his father was a cross-dresser. Okay. I didn't even realize that. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't really know that either. Uh, his his father was a crossdresser. Um, he caught Marvin caught his father dressed in his mother's clothes clothes many times. Maybe there okay. there goes hate. <laughs> What's that? Maybe they started to hate. Oh, he knows I like to get. He's a pastor. yeah, yeah. I mean, he's I, a I, minister, I, and you're getting cross-dressed like most of our priests and ministers do. <laughs> oh, yeah, Marvin Marvin took the. Uh, the religious upbringing seriously. He yeah. didn't reject. He didn't reject it at least no. for a long time. Uh, it was always part of his life, and um, he would sing about it in, in a lot of his songs. Uh, but uh, but you know, catching, I think his, ca catching I, his dad like that. Oh, okay. And and you know, being a man, a, a reverend, a preacher. Yeah, preacher, and, pre and, pre and preaching that that is wrong. Yeah, and then seeing this double life. You know, and his father had extramarital affairs. Um, I'm not sure if Marvin was made aware of that, like, a lot. But, I mean, his father seemed like the type that might have just did that in front of him. I'm not yeah. sure. Okay. Maybe, maybe he did. He didn't care. You maybe he mean, did. You don't, you don't mean nothing. You're a piece of crap, you know? And yeah, and he loved his mother so much to see her abused in any kind of way would, would mess him up. But he ran away to the Air Force when he was 17, quit high school and did that, but... <laughs> It didn't really, it didn't really work out for him. Okay, nah. um, his time in the Air Force was short. He hated taking orders. Uh, the sergeant that was in charge of him actually gave him a discharge. It was an honorable discharge, but in the report, it said that uh, you know, he, was, he didn't like to take orders. Yeah, all right, and and he didn't like being there. He just didn't like doing any kind of menial tasks and stuff. Yeah, he, you know, I think he he did it to get away, but I think he quickly kind of regretted it. You know? Yeah. So when he got back to Washington D.C., he joined a friend's vocal group called the Marquis, and uh, they often performed with Bo Diddley, who was just starting out. I thought that uh, was impressive. Very impressive. Uh, Diddley himself liked the Marquis a lot. And he tried to get them signed to the chess label that he was on, based out of Chicago. But he ended up getting them signed to uh, Columbia Records subsidiary OK Records. 
Um, and the Marquis made one single for OK called Wyatt Earp, and it was written by Bo Diddley, but it bombed after, you know, after it was released, didn't sell, and they were actually dropped from that label. Um, there was a guy named Harvey Fuqua who, who co-founded the vocal group The Moon Glows, who were pretty successful. Uh, he had hired members of the, uh, of the Marquis as his band. He was putting together yeah. a, new, a new Moon Glows called Harvey and the New Moon Glows. And they ended up relocating to Chicago. The Marquis ended up doing some, some singles for Chess. So they were able to get on at that point in 1959. Uh, they wrote a, there was a song called Mama Lucy, okay, which was, was Marvin's first vocal lead. If you listen to that song, it's, it's, it's him singing. Uh, they also did some chess, uh, from some session work, excuse me, for uh, Chuck Berry. Another okay. very impressive uh, also. Yeah, Mar Marvin Gaye's uh, vocals can be heard in, uh, back in the USA. That Chuck Berry song, yeah. uh, another one called "Almost Grown," that was a hit. Yeah, uh, they're in, they're in the backing vocals there, the Marquis. In 1960, the Moonglows, excuse me, the, Mar the Moonglows, not the Marquis. The Marquis were done. Uh, in 1960, the Moonglows disbanded, and Fuqua and Gay ended up in Detroit, and they were working with Tri-Fi Records. Okay, uh, he did some session work here. He could play drums. Marvin. Oh yeah! Okay. Wow! Yeah, yeah. He so we played drums on a few of their singles on Tri-Fi. Uh, it was at this point that the president of Motown, Barry Gordy, happened to come across Marvin. All right. You want to hear something? You want to talk about a scumbag? We got to do a show about Barry Gordy and how he fucked all his fucking people, <laughs> took the money, and fucked. Yeah. Had yeah, that's another yep. sightseeing motherfucker. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we you know we we, we <laughs> could do you know next year we could do a whole month on these guys, Barry Gordy, Phil Spector, uh, oh. you know these these guys that just just like geniuses, but but fucked everybody. They were fucked up, up. <laughs> you know. But at this point, Barry Gordy kind of found uh, Marvin Gaye on accident. It was at some session <laughs> session work that was being done, and uh, he spoke with Fuqua. Fuqua had Marvin under contract, okay, and he said, well, I'd like to buy him out. So Fuqua sold him his interest in, in gay, okay, which would turn out to be <laughs> probably a big mistake, okay, yeah. and he signed Marvin, uh, Gordy signed Marvin to uh, the Motown subsidiary called Tamla Records in early 61. Now, when Marvin signed with Tamla, records he didn't want to do the r&b stuff that tamla was putting out no okay uh he kind of fancied himself more of a frank sinatra type yeah. or more <laughs> like a nat king cole jazz influenced type okay so uh you know which was different okay uh it was different from the label and his and and the other people on the label uh i think some people were kind of like you know who the hell is he okay but, you know, that's how he viewed himself. And his first single was called Let Your Conscience Be Your Guide. Okay. And in May 61, at that point, before that single came out, Marvin changed the spelling of his name. Okay. It was spelled G-A-Y at birth. And yeah. they added, he added an E at the end for two reasons. Uh, one was he used to get teased all the time. Marvin Gaye. Marvin Gaye. You know, are you gay? Like that. Yeah. And then uh, he also liked how Sam Cooke, 
the singer, had done that with his name. He liked the way it looked with an E at the end. So he wanted to do the same thing. Um, it was also kind of a way of distancing himself from his father. Okay. Uh, just change his name a little bit. Kind of meant he wasn't related to him anymore. You know. So at this point, their relationship was still bad. Okay, even though Marvin was signed to a, a, a pretty major label, he was starting a career, he hardly saw his dad. He hardly saw his family at that point, okay? Uh, he was kind of like by himself. Um, his co-workers at the label um, liked him. He was a likable guy. He was a charming guy. But even they sensed a kind of a sadness in him, you know? Um, and it might be more like because he was kind of a little to himself, a little like private, almost like dark. Like, like he knew what was going to happen. He knew his dad was going to be his downfall. I really think he had a premonition. Like he knew at at times in his life, he did feel that he would he would not live long. Yeah, he felt people were after him. Uh, did he think his father was going to kill him eventually? I'm not sure. I don't think so, but I think that, you know, I think he had this, well, he had this devotion to family, yeah. okay, you know, growing up the way he did in the church, and, it, it, you know, when you're like that, and then you also have a father who's really, like, a total piece of shit, you know, yeah. how are you, how are you, it's a conflict, yeah. right, you want to see your family, you want to yeah. see your father, you want to get your father's uh, approval, you know, approval and, and, and love, but, you know, he doesn't give it. No, he doesn't. Do you, you feel conflicted. And it, it, it haunted him his whole life. But he uh, got it at the end, all right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Shit, yeah, he did. Okay. But uh, <laughs> now in June of 61, his full album called The Soulful Moods of Marvin Gaye was released, but it yeah. failed commercially. Yeah. It was an album of jazz and, and pop standards. It was almost like a Sinatra, Nat King Cole kind of thing, and it just bombed, okay? Uh, he went back to doing some session work. He performed playing drums with Smokey Robinson and the Miracles in the studio. He was very close to Smokey Robinson. They had a yeah. lifelong friendship. Uh, the Marvelettes, which were a hot up-and-coming group, uh, were, were huge. Uh, they, were, they were friends with, uh, with him. And also blues artist Jimmy Reed, okay? Which is very interesting because he played drums for Jimmy Reed and at the same time, on the other side of the Atlantic, the Rolling Stones were listening to those Jimmy Reed records. Yep. Okay, and, and you know, whether they knew at some point that Marvin Gaye was actually the drummer, I, I, I guess they did, but not at that time, because he was just in the studio probably uncredited. Um, in 1962, he had his first brush with success. He co-wrote the Marvelettes' first hit called Beachwood 45789. Yep. And he had two hits of his own. Uh, the song was called a stubborn kind of fellow. And then there was an R&B dance hit called Hitchhike. Uh, in the first half of 63, he would have his first top 10 single called Pride and Joy. Yep. And his second album called That Stubborn Kind of Fellow would be released. And he joined the Motown Review. Uh, it was called Motortown Review, excuse me. And it was, a, it was like a series of concert tours that was on the Chitlin circuit. Now, we mentioned the Chitlin circuit with Little Richard yeah. and some other, you know, acts. That was, uh, you know, for black artists that uh, traveled up and down the East Coast, okay, into the South and up and down the East Coast. They played black clubs, uh, black venues, 
Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, segregation, Jim Crow laws were still in effect. Many of the, you know, he experienced having to, in the Deep South, uh, be segregated from everybody else, stay in black hotels, black, you know, restaurants and, you know, places that would serve them and stuff like that. Uh, unfortunately, that was still going on in the early 60s. But his live show at the Apollo here in New York City in June of 63 was actually filmed. Okay, and Tamla Records uh, released a Marvin Gaye live recorded on stage album in October of that year. Have you ever heard so, that album? That album yes. you can see genius, like you can see oh, all yes. this guy. Yes, uh, he, he, you know, I mean, he was doing those early '60s hits like Hitchhike, which I love that song. Yeah, right? and a lot, of, a lot of bands have covered that. Uh, the Stones do a great version of it. Um, even Alice Cooper, when he was in his garage band called The Spiders, he covered Hitchhike, did it very well. Um, there was a live track released as a single off yeah. that album that came out called Can I Get a Witness? And that was another great song. The Stones, great song. The Stones covered that too. That was, a, that was another yep. one. And that was a big international hit. So in 63, uh, he ended up marrying Barry Gordy's sister, Anna. Okay. And Anna was <laughs> quite a bit older than him. I think she was about 11 years or so older than him. And Marvin, you know, was a very stubborn guy. Okay. He didn't listen to a yeah. lot of people. All right. And that, that title about him being a stubborn man, that was really suited for him. And, yeah. Uh, he would, but he would tend to listen to older women at that time in his life. And it was because he had the respect for his elders growing up the way he did. And also, he, he, you know, his closeness with his mom, I think uh, he respected older women, and it was kind of natural that he would, he would fall in love with, with an older woman. Yeah. Now, she was, she was 35, and I think he was about 24 when they got married. Um, they would end up adopting uh, a boy right after they got married named uh, Marvin III. Okay. Um, in 64... Riding high on his success from 63, uh, it would prove to be a very pivotal year for him. Uh, he was recently married, like I said, but Tamla yeah. and Motown wanted to kind of push him almost as a sex symbol, okay, uh, portray him in that way. So what they did is they teamed him up with a couple of female artists on the label to do duets with, okay? Yeah. And he did a duets album with Mary Wells. And uh, it was called Together, and that got to number 42 on the Billboard pop charts. And then there was a double A-side single called Once Upon a Time and What's the Matter with You, Baby. Both those songs reached the top 20. Now, his next solo hit was called How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You. Yep. And it was, uh, right, it was written by uh, the writing group Holland Dozier in Holland, and it got to number six. And it hit the top twenty, top fifty. Excuse me. Also in the UK, so he was starting to make a buzz internationally at this point as well. He had some TV appearances, including uh, American Bandstand that year. Yeah. He appeared on the Tammy Show, which was a, basically a concert movie of uh, different artists. And he had two number one R and B singles in '65. Uh, one called "I'll Be Doggone." which was written by Smokey Robinson, yep. and a song called Ain't That Peculiar. 
He you know, Smokey, Smokey Robinson wrote a lot of hits for uh, Motown for a lot of the a lot of these groups. People don't realize. Remember when we talked letters. about that in the uh, we talked about that in the Temptations episode. Yeah, because he's right. like uh, he was really influence. you know right, right. I mean, very, very influential. Smokey was a major talent. Without him, there wouldn't have been Motown. Yeah, Without definitely. Him. There would they wouldn't have had the writing. You know. Um, he also, Marvin, at this time, did a tribute album to Nat King Cole, who recently yeah. was okay, died. Um, in 65, he scored a hit with Kim Weston on a song called It Takes Two. And then in now 66, he began... Yeah, you know that one. Uh, in 66, he began working with a new artist on Motown called Tammy Terrell. All right. And it was a series of duets that would be very popular. Uh, a song called Ain't No Mountain High Enough, a song called Your Precious Love, Ain't Nothing yep. Like the Real Thing, yep. and You're All I Need to Get By. They were all interesting. They were all uh, written by Ashford and Simpson. Yeah. Okay. Ashford and Simpson were very popular later on in the 80s. They did their own music. I um, think this is the time. I think this one, because I, I think he was in love with this girl. Then he maybe never acted well, on them. They had chemistry. Right, they had a chemistry, and if you look at them perform together, yeah, I think I think uh, I think Martha Van Vandella, somebody comments on this in the documentary that you know Terrell looked like she was in love with him just by the way she looked at him, yeah, formed. Now, did they ever act on it? I don't think so. I think I don't think they I, did. the impression I got is that they just had this chemistry, and he cared about her almost as like an older brother. Uh, older brother. But who knows? <laughs> but, but who, yeah, but 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 who knows? Okay, uh, you know. But she would unfortunately have a very short life. Yeah. Um, now, as he was riding high on these big hits, um, his father never went to see him perform. Okay, and still didn't approve of what he was doing. Okay, one time he even showed up at their house with a briefcase full. Of a million dollars in cash, just to show him what he Jesus had. Christ at that time okay. a million dollar. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's like six million now. Okay, yeah. and and you know, his father actually said to him, and he quoted the Bible. He says, "You know, how can you have all the wealth in the world but still lose your soul?" Okay, so his mother and his siblings were were showing him the love he needed, but he never got his father's approval. No. at least at this point. Uh, but tragedy would strike in 67. Uh, Tammy Terrell would be performing with him on stage and collapse into his arms. It turned out she got rushed to the hospital and diagnosed with a brain tumor. Uh, that basically ended her performing career. But she still managed to record some songs over the next few years. Uh, um, Marvin was, you know basically destroyed by this uh he was very close with her uh he got kind of disillusioned with the whole music business at this point yeah. uh his marriage with anna was starting to fall apart um she was very jealous anna okay and gave him a hard time about these duets he was doing you know whether or not it was legit i don't know but i think she suspected him fooling around with terrell and and some of these other women uh that he had duets with um it, you know it, 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 I think it actually worked on his mind too that 
you know, if you think I'm cheating all the time, you must be cheating too. Because oh, he, yeah. was known to, he was known to be kind of like following her around, Anna around, and trying to see if she was messing around. Wow. He would, he, would, he would have people watch her and stuff like that. And it's interesting because that behavior at that time, it kind of led him to, to record what would be one of his biggest hits. I heard it through the grapevine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that would be his first number one uh, in, on Billboard in 1968. Now, Gladys Knight had done the song, too. <laughs> Uh, Gladys Knight and the Pips, but she did it in a more upbeat kind of way. I don't know if you've ever heard her version. Yeah, you probably have. Uh, but Marvin did it like a a slowed down version, and you know, knowing what was going on with his relationship with his wife Anna, it's kind of like it's kind of messed up when you listen to the words. Yeah, because as I heard it through the grapevine, you're messing around. You know. Yeah, and and I, I think that was very personal for him. Um, and then that was telling him singing that? that him singing that version was like holy shit because there were people that will hear that Marvin Gaye this song been out but you hear the Marvin Gaye version you're like motherfucker oh man well yeah I mean he he, he took the song and you know just <laughs> the the bass in the beginning uh, fucking yeah, great it's a, it's, it's a great fucking, everybody <laughs> as soon as you hear it you know the song you know yeah and it ended up selling four million copies worldwide so it was wow. the biggest hit to that point now but marvin even though he had this success he was bigger than ever he felt it was kind of undeserved he felt he was a puppet of barry gordy and okay, also yeah. Anna, okay so he followed up Grapevine with uh, Too Busy Thinking About My Baby and That's the Way Love Is. Both of them would go top 10 in 1969. Uh, he would release an album called MPG, which was short for Marvin Gay, and it was released and it hit number one on the R&B charts. So he was, by 69, still riding high. Um, by March 16th, 1970, uh, Tammy Terrell's fight with brain cancer would be over. She would pass away, unfortunately. And Marvin attended the funeral. And afterwards, he fell into like a deep depression for a few months. Uh, he came out of it. He actually was thinking about giving up music. Uh, he actually flirted with the idea of becoming a football player. I thought, I didn't know that either, that he wanted to be a football player. I never knew that either. Yeah, I never knew that either. But he had befriended two members of the Detroit Lions, uh, Mel Farr and Lem Barney. And uh, he actually trained to make the team. Uh, he used to jog with Smokey Robinson, okay, sometimes together. And he would tell Smokey, yeah, I'm trying out for the Lions. And, you know, Smokey would just be, like, shaking head, you know. No, but, no. But, uh, <laughs> like, that's not happening, you know. But, uh, and it wouldn't, okay, because it would eventually be decided that gay couldn't do that because if he got hurt, he would lose his, you know, he could possibly use his, lose his musical career. So he didn't want to risk everything. Um, but not only was he interested in becoming a football player at this point, 1970, he was becoming more socially conscious. Okay? Yeah. And he wanted to record a new kind of record, something that really hadn't been done before, at least by black artists. Um, he, you know, his brother actually served in Vietnam. The war was raging at that point. And he would write him letters about the horrors that he was seeing. 
Uh, of course, late '60s, you had a lot of riots. Uh, oh yeah, cities were burning, burning in the summertime. Uh, <laughs> hate to say, it, but kind of very similar to what we're seeing these days. Yeah. Um, but, and Mike, uh, let me ask you a question. You know what he did? Also, Marvin Gaye was one of the few guys that was his own backup single. He would, but he would be—he was his own backup singer. Yeah, yeah. He would uh, thing, and he would—it was amazing what he did back in those days with just what the technology had. He would take this, and then he would put it like the fucking guy was a musical. He could have been a producer. He was a genius. Well, he did—he did produce himself a couple of times. Yeah, okay, what's I mean, going, that's what's what I going mean. on would be would be self-produced. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, he—he he, look. Musical genius. That's all I could say. Yeah. You know, he just really, he knew what he was doing. Yeah. Because think about it. Even after, let's say if he never had another hit, he could have easily had a career in producing music into good point. Like, like, that's what he could have done. He might never, you know, if he would have yeah. just keep his head on straight in, but he was, what a fucking demon. Sorry yeah, to cut I mean, you off, but holy at shit. This point, yeah, I mean, at this point in the, in the 60s, he was basically a, a drinker and a pot smoker not much more than that okay yeah. uh later later things would you know would change he would get into harder drugs but at this point he was becoming more socially conscious yeah um he wanted to make an album about what was going on in the world and um, you know this was different than than what other artists on motown were doing um barry gordy if you remember in the Temptations episode, we talked yeah. about it. He was always, you know, he would dissuade you. He, he would try to be like, listen, an album like that is not going to sell. Um, it's not going to be commercial enough or it might get banned from the radio. Stay away from politics. But he didn't listen. You know, he don't care. <laughs> he didn't care. Okay. And, you know, you got one thing, too, is, you know, when you're married to the, the sister of the president of the label, you got kind of some leverage. I would yeah. Think. Okay. So it was like, okay, you don't agree with me, so fuck you. Okay. I'm yeah. Doing fuck it anyway. You. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, and the Temptations had kind of gone in this direction at that point. Uh, also, even though Gordy was always against it, songs like "Ball of Confusion" and stuff like that was coming out around the same time, and that that yeah. went well. But um, on June first, nineteen seventy, Gay returned to the Hitsville USA studios in Detroit, where Motown was to record what's going on. And it was a new song inspired by uh, police brutality that was witnessed at an anti-war rally at Berkeley University. Uh, but Gordy refused to release it after he heard that it was going to be a totally political album. Uh, he had the song uh, recorded and some of the album. And Gordy said, no. I'm not putting it out. Okay, so Marvin Gaye went on strike. I thought that was unbelievable. <laughs> for, 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 I think, about three quarters of a year, approximately. Okay? Fuck you, I'm and not he singing. Recorded, he recorded nothing. He recorded nothing yep. for the label. Remember, he was under contract. Yeah. And when you're under contract, you have to record a certain amount of albums or songs, whatever it is, in a certain amount of time, and he just wasn't doing it. Okay? So in May of 71... The What's Going album was finally released. By March of that year, he went back into the studio, finished up. Gordy said he would put it out. So he, he broke Gordy. He got him to, to release it. 
and it's the first time he got a, produ a producing credit. He produced that album, okay? Yeah. And it was also the first time the session musicians at Motown called the Funk Brothers went credited. Yep. All right? Now, prior to that, the Funk Brothers would, would be the session guys that played on all those Motown songs. Yeah, everything from the Supremes to the Temptations. All the music you hear are this group of like a dozen guys, maybe even a little bit more, okay, that uh, went uncredited pretty much and played all the music that you heard. Well, it's uh, actually a good documentary. It's a good documentary. Out there. If you haven't seen it, Mike, check is, it out on the front. There is a good documentary good. on him. I did, I did see it. It's really um, good. Now, what's going on is a concept album. I don't know if yeah. you realize that. It's kind of like about a Vietnam vet coming back home to a country that's torn apart and filled and with hatred. Like, and, and doesn't like him. And doesn't like him, which was like Okay. You know, imagine serving a year or two in Vietnam and coming back and getting spit on. Yes. Okay. Being called a baby killer. Okay. Now, that's one thing that we haven't seen nowadays thank god okay yeah but back then back then uh you know guys coming back from vietnam faced this and you know the country was being torn apart there was a lot of uh racial hatred a lot of suffering a lot of injustice going on and uh this album actually you know captures all that and it even is the first album i think to bring up any kind of environmental issues as well Okay, uh, uh, the song Mercy, Mercy Me, it's actually a print, uh, there's parentheses with that. It's Mercy, Mercy Me, uh, The Ecology. Okay, the ecology. and it's ta it talks about, you know, pollution and stuff like that, which at the time in 1970 was a big deal. Okay? Yeah. There weren't, there weren't regulations in place. You know, the waters were getting filthy. The, the air was filthy. They didn't have these things, you know. We don't realize we don't talk about that too much anymore now because you know the air and the water is cleaner now than it's ever been, okay. But uh, in those days, that wasn't the case. Remember in the early 70s, you had the commercial with the Indian, oh, the Indian, okay. the garbage, and the thing, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was the beginning of all that when, when the environment was becoming an issue, and uh, but but uh, gay was like a couple of years ahead of that, all right. And the interesting too, thing, too, about this album is that each song segues into the next. There's, like, no yeah. space yeah. between the songs, which gives it, like, a, you know, uh, an urgency to it. Like, when you listen to it, you can't, it's the kind of album you can't listen to in pieces. You got to listen to it from beginning to end. Yes, the album you can't walk away. Like, once you go, you'll go into another song. He was, like, telling the story that kept going. Exactly. You know. Uh, yeah, I mean, another album I can think of that's like that is uh, is Lou Reed's New York. Thing oh yeah, in nineteen eighty nine. That's another album that you can't listen to just one song. You got to hear it from beginning to end because then it all makes sense. Okay. How about how uh, about these in the closet? Twenty nine songs in the closet about. <laughs> You ever heard that piece of shit? Wait, wait, what are you? T I'm sorry, what are you talking about? Kenny in the closet? You ever heard oh, oh, oh. I'm in the closet? And the guy comes oh, home and it's a ridiculous fucking. He tried to do the same thing, but it, it failed miserably. A, co a concept album. Yeah, it was horrible. It was crap. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. It's oh, a he's, in jail. he's in jail doing his time. 
if that if that album was a toilet paper, you can wipe your ass with it many times. <laughs> uh, now the what the what's going on album? What's uh, going on? The Marvin's Marvin's first million selling album. Okay, it launched three top ten singles. Yeah, uh, the type the title track, of course, "Mercy, Mercy Me," and a song called "Inner City Blues." Uh, Gay received two Grammy nominations. He didn't win, surprisingly. No, but, but uh, he did. did receive a uh, an end a couple of NAACP Image Awards that year. Uh, Rolling Stone magazine called it the album of the year as well. Yeah, in my opinion, and I, I said this earlier in the show, I think it's one of the greatest records ever recorded. Uh, it falls into that category. If you've never heard it, you need to hear it at least once in your life. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, you you know, oldies radio and stuff will still play. What's going on? Or mercy, mercy me. Uh, they play it to this day. Okay. But yeah. uh, I think to get the full effect of what he was trying to say. Uh, you got to hear the whole thing from beginning to end. You know what's funny? A lot of his songs still get used in um, movies today. Like, you know, certain, like, it's like that now they pick up a lot more and they use his songs in a lot of movies. Like, every movie. Like, there's hundreds of movies you can see right now that got Marvin Gaye's, like, music in the background. Just yeah. Uh, I think Dead Presidents featured him. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think Spike Lee's used him. Oh yes, much. Spike Lee is. Uh, a lot of people. Yeah. Um, you know uh, what can you say? The guy, the guy was. <laughs> you know, it's great music to draw from for a movie. Uh, and he would actually do a movie score. We're going to talk about that now. Okay. Uh, after what's going on was done, uh, Marvin renegotiated his his Motown deal, and he got the biggest. Uh, amount of money at that point by any black artist at the time. Uh, it was a $1 million deal. Now, you know, in today's money, it would probably be like, you know, a lot more than that. Yeah. But uh, at the time, that was that was a, a huge deal. And he began working on a soundtrack and film score to a black exploitation movie that was being made called Trouble Man. But right before he did this, he released a single a non-album single called You're the Man. And it was actually going to be part of an album of the same name, okay, that he actually had recorded. So he put out this single, and again, it was a political song, okay? It's kind of like, um, it, it had to do, deal with the election in 72, well, McGovern versus Nixon. Nixon was yeah. going to get reelected. And, uh, you know, he was kind of, Asking in the song, you know, what are you going to do to, you know, repair the injustices that have been done by the Nixon administration and others before that? So he wasn't putting blame on just Republicans or Democrats. He was like, no, kinda, no. and he was kind of put, putting that question towards McGovern in the song, I believe. And uh, the, he, the as a single, it bombed. Yeah. Okay. It just didn't connect with people for some reason. Now, Gordy, of course, was against it being released in the first place, even though it was released. Uh, and he kind of used that failure that it didn't sell as a reason to kind of shelve the whole album that that Gay had recorded. Okay. So that wow. album, You're the Man, would not see release until the 2000s. Yeah. 
okay, would finally come out. Uh, it's a pretty good album, okay? It was kind of just like what he was doing with what's going on and like, you know, a little bit more so. I think it's even a little bit more controversial. In yeah. a way. Um, but because that album was shelved, he had to put out another album quick, and that would be the Trouble Man soundtrack that would be released on the, the Tamla Motown label in uh, 1972. <clears throat> At this point, Marvin and Anna, even though they were having marital trouble, they ended up leaving Detroit and moved to Los Angeles. Okay, In August of 73, he would come out with the Let's Get It On album. Let's right. get it on. And, yeah. Right, right, and it it you know it was it was his second number one single that song, okay, in the Hot 100, and the album was a monster hit, and it stayed in the charts for two years, selling about four million copies, okay, which was a lot for an album at the time. Um, <laughs> now other tracks on it was called "Come Get to This" and a song called "You Sure Love to Ball." <laughs> So, you know, That's it was a sexual yeah. album. Yeah, it was. You know. Very yeah, sexual. Yeah. Now, uh, <laughs> right, right. Now, uh, in 1974, there was another duet project that he was working on with Diana Ross. Okay. They kind of had different styles, uh, but it did, it did have some moderate international success. Um, and then the, uh, it, they, Marvin did his first tour in four years at that point and that was really attracting a lot of attention uh it began january 4th 1974 in oakland and it was recorded that that uh particular show was recorded for a live album and its single uh was called uh, distant lover which was a track off of let's get it on so that did well uh gay was getting a, a reputation as a, a top-notch performer through 1974 and into 75 he was earning as much as a hundred thousand dollars per show. Yeah, man, that's that's incredible money. money. Yeah, incredible money. Now, unfortunately, most of this was going up his nose. Okay, uh, he had developed a very bad cocaine habit in the seventies, uh, and there was some other drugs involved. Um, you know, he would have problems with 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 the IRS coming up soon. There was a lot of financial issues. He did renew his Motown contract once again in 75. And in that deal, he ended up getting a uh, custom-made recording studio. Yeah, which, wow. Okay, which was a big deal. Uh, in October of 75, he played Radio City for a benefit concert to help African literacy. Uh, he was commended by UN officials. Okay, the UN official to Ghana was Shirley Temple Black. And the UN secretary was General Kurt Waldheim. Do you know them? No. Do you know who they are? No, I think okay. Shirley, Shirley Temple. Black Sh Shirley Temple? Temple? Yeah. Yes. Okay, little Shirley Temple became an ambassador to Ghana, okay, uh, in her adult years. And yeah. Kurt Waldheim was the UN secretary general, but he was an ex-Nazi. Oh, what's that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Great, great trivia question. Was the UN ever run by a Nazi? Yes. Yes, it was, okay. I guess. And we'll talk about that maybe in a conspiracy show. Oh, yeah, definitely. Day. Okay. Now, F touring, the studio album in 76, I Want You. And uh, there was a title track to that, I Want You, and that was a big number one R&B hit. Yeah. Uh, he would hit Europe that year for his first tour in a decade. 
Okay, he started off in Belgium. In early 77, Marvin released a live album, Live at the London Palladium, which sold 2 million copies thanks to the number one disco hit called Got to Give It Up. All right, that's a different kind of song. If you listen yeah. to it, you're not even sure it's Marvin Gaye. Yeah, but it is. He's just he's singing in a falsetto voice. Uh, and I, I'm convinced that Mick Jagger ripped that style off to do Miss You on oh, yeah. his album. Oh, yeah. When when he sings in that falsetto voice, it's the same thing. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, so Mike, Mike and Seth, yeah. This, you know what? This thing this that you're going to talk about next. When you get a divorce and you got no money and the judge say, just just take the money from the album. <laughs> Who the fuck would make a decision like that? Think about that shit. I know. He's so broke. I know. I He's getting paid uh, 100000 a 100000 a show. And he's so broke that he can't even pay alimony. Right. How the His fuck does that happen? Him and he can't even pay alimony. Yep. How did I that mean, happen? it's messed up. Uh, uh, it's just messed up. Okay, the IRS was on his back. He was shoveling a lot of cocaine up his nose. That's yeah. what was going on. Okay. <laughs> so back in 75, Anna asked him for a divorce. Okay. Yeah. Now, the marriage was over, but Marvin had kind of moved on, and he was involved with a 16-year-old girl named Janice, okay, who we would marry yeah, they are. You know, later on and have two kids with. Now, yep. in December of 78, as part of this divorce agreement, Marvin released Here My Dear, and all the proceeds were supposed to go to Anna, okay? Um, the IRS, I don't, I don't know how they were dealing with that at that point. I, think he, I don't think he ever really paid him, probably as a state did after he died. Yeah, okay. but uh, that would be much later. Um, the album bombed. <laughs> it was it was supposed to all go to Anna, but nobody bought it. All right, it was a double album. Okay, and I it's actually it's... I listened to it a little bit last night, and for the first time, I never heard anything off that album. And you know, he's singing about his wife. He's calling her by name, Anna, Anna, Anna. You know, and it's, <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, here's your own personal album. I hope it sells, but but nobody bought it. Okay, I he ended up relocating. Was that? I didn't. I didn't think he won that album. So they didn't bomb like it sold like six copies in the first couple of days, and then it went and sold a few more. But it was a total fucking failure. Yeah, to total epic failure. Definitely. Okay, <laughs> totally. Right. He he had relocated to Hawaii. He was trying to get away from everybody at yeah. that point. He left with Janice, uh, his daughter Nona, and his son Frankie that he had with with her. Uh, he was trying to work on a disco album. But in 1980, with sales down and the IRS still on his back, Marvin ended up going to Europe on a, on a tour, okay? At the end of the tour, he just stayed in London. He relocated there out of fear of the IRS. He owed almost $5 million at that point. That was a wow. lot of money in 1980. All right. Uh, his marriage to Janice was falling apart, okay, amid kind of like drug abuse between the two of them. All right. Yeah, they were, 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 were big drug addicts at that point. Uh, when he was in London, he started kind of reworking this disco album that he was working on. And he changed it, okay? He changed the original concept to, like, make a more personal album. Uh, it kind of dealt with religious issues and specifically the Book of Revelations from the Bible. Uh, the album was supposed to be called In Our Lifetime, question mark, In Our Lifetime. And he worked on it in several different London studios through much of, much of 1980. But this is messed up. And, you know, this is where you talk about Barry Gordy, okay? Uh, late in the year, 
somebody stole that master copy from one of Gay's travel, traveling musicians, a master wow. copy of this album that he had worked on. And they took it to Motown's Hollywood headquarters. Motown remixed it and put it out. Wow. January 15th, 1981, they put it out. Gay hears about it, that he's got a new album out for Motown. He had no idea. He's living in London, okay? Uh, he accused them of, of releasing it, remixing it, and putting it out without his consent. They actually took the question mark off it of the In Our Lifetime, which kind of took the meaning away, okay, of what he was, you know, the, the, the irony of the album that he was trying to say. Uh, and he promised, I will never record for Motown again. He was still under contract. There wasn't yeah. probably much he could do, okay, nah. legally. And he was also in another country. So it was, it was difficult. But they put this out without his permission. Right. <laughs> that's, that's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. crazy. I mean, how many times do you hear that? Never. Yeah, that, that never happened. No. That now, never while, while in London, he met Belgian music promoter Freddie Cousart, okay? Now, he convinced Marvin to relocate to Belgium. He actually moved in with him at his family, okay, and lived at uh, Cousart's house in, in Ostend, Belgium. Yeah. He was weaned off of his cocaine habit, all right, and other drugs that he was involved with. And he began exercising, getting in shape. He even was starting to go to church again. He was ripe for a comeback. He was interested in making a comeback. He went on a short tour of England for about a month between June, June and July of 81. The tour ended in Belgium. Uh, and in uh, March of 82, he would leave Motown officially and sign with CBS. A deal yep. was worked out. Now, um, he was assigned to CBS's Columbia subsidiary. And Gay began working on his first non-Motown album at that point called Midnight Love. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, the, the album, first baby. Was, <laughs> the first single was called Sexual Healing. We all know this yeah. song, okay? Yeah. And it was written and recorded in Belgium, in Ostend, and released on September 30th, 1982. It was Gay's biggest career hit. It hit number one on the Hot Black Singles charts. It got to number three on Billboard, number one in Australia and New Zealand. It went top ten in the UK. It was a worldwide smash. And there was a popular video for it shot at a casino in Belgium called the Casino Cursal. This would be a huge smash, okay? And the album, because the single was so good, uh, it ended up being a top ten hit on Billboard. And number one on the R&B charts, uh, selling over six million copies worldwide. Um, he sang the Star Spangled Banner at the NBA All-Star Game in 1983, and he appeared in uh, March of uh, that year on the Motown 25th special called "Yesterday, Today, and Forever." Well, yeah, I remember uh, that, made... that special. Yeah, I do remember that too. I remember watching that. He also made his third and last appearance on Soul Train in May of that year. Uh, starting in April, though, he began the Sexual Healing Tour in San Diego, and he ended that in August. Okay, uh, The tour was plagued with drug problems. Oh, yeah, a right? lot of drugs. He ended up back on cocaine and other drugs, uh, unfortunately. And some of the shows, his voice was awful. 
uh, particularly yeah. a few of the last ones. Getting back to what we were saying, um, the tour, after he left, he went back and he moved in with his family in Los Angeles. He yeah. didn't want to do this. It was, uh, you know, he knew that just basically living with his dad was going to be hell. Okay. Yeah. Um, he had a bad, you know, he was, his father was an alcoholic. Marvin was drinking a lot and doing cocaine. Uh, but his mother was actually sickly at that point. She had developed bone cancer. Yeah. Um, and she would struggle with that for the rest of her life. Um, but living with his family, he would witness the verbal abuse constantly that his father yeah. was doing to his mother. Um, he still really didn't have much of a relationship with his dad, even though he was living with him. He uh, would kind of stay in separate parts of the house away from everybody. Um, but in, on April 1st, 1984, there was a vicious argument that actually had been going on for about a day. His father was looking for an insurance policy in the house that he had somewhere and couldn't find it. So for like a 24-hour period, he was berating his wife, Marvin's mother. Just, you know, wouldn't leave her alone, cursing her. You know, where's the fucking policy? That kind of thing. And, you know, finally, on April 1st, 1984, after a day of this, uh, it was a vicious argument broke out between Marvin yeah. and his dad. Now, his dad used to always tell him, because there were times when Marvin wanted to pop his father in the face. All right, He would always tell him, if you hit me, I'm going to kill you. I, I brought you into the world. I'll take you and out. I, yeah. Okay. And uh, at this time, Marvin crossed that line, and he beat the shit out of his father. Okay. And at that moment, you know, a few minutes later, after it happened, Marvin Sr., you know, was in his bedroom and pulled out a gun that Marvin had actually given him for protection in the house yeah. a few months earlier, okay, uh, and shot him straight in the heart. Yep. One okay. shot. Uh, one shot. And then actually went over to him as he was slumped over and shot him in the shoulder. Okay, so two times he was shot. He was basically, you know, dead right away. He was shot right yeah. in the chest. Um, and uh, Marvin Sr. went outside. He, put, he, he hid the gun, and he went outside and just sat there. And the mother realized what happened. An ambulance was called. Um, I believe Frankie lived next door, the younger brother. I think he came running out yeah. trying to save his brother's life. Uh he couldn't, and Marvin was pronounced dead at the California Hospital Medical Center at 1.01 p.m. on April 1st, 1984, one day short of his 45th birthday. Crazy is that. Crazy. Now, what gets me is his father never really did time. Okay? No. Because when the, when the trial was happening, it was discovered he had a brain tumor. So his defense lawyers used that as a way to get out of jail. Yeah. And, you know, um, he made a speech um, at the sentencing about how remorseful he was. Uh, you know, I, I watched it. He didn't look that remorseful. Okay. Uh, his, his mother actually would end up divorcing him right after this. Okay. And spend the rest of his, uh, her life you know, being taken care of by her family. 
uh, father ended up in a nursing home. Now, this brain tumor he had was in his pituitary gland. And a pituitary gland tumor is totally different than a regular brain tumor like Tammy Terrell had. All right? Yeah. Um, I, I've, I've, I've known people with pituitary tumors. It's not a death sentence. But I guess no. maybe in 84... They didn't know this, or yeah. it was never taken into consideration. He ended up getting a six-year suspended sentence. Wow. All right. Yeah, and he would die in 1998 in a nursing home. So he lived another 15 years, but he supposedly had a brain tumor. Yeah. <laughs> okay. crazy. So, I mean, it's kind of messed up. Now, his wife, Alberta, died in 1987, eventually of bone cancer herself. It was something she struggled with at the end of her life. But... Again, like I said at the beginning of the show, this is just such a tragedy. The guy was on top of the world. Okay, sexual healing was a huge hit. Uh, but everything he had done, what's going on, being one of the greatest albums ever recorded, in my opinion. Uh, he had the respect of so many different kinds of artists in different genres. Uh, yeah. Like I said, everything from the Stones to straight up R&B. They loved him. Disco, okay. Uh it's a tragedy, and he never got past, you know, the whole thing with his dad, and his dad ended was up a, killing him. He was a bad business businessman. He made a lot of bad decisions. He, he made a lot of bad decisions, and he had a lot of hangers-ons, a lot of people that weren't right for him, especially towards the end of his life. You yeah. know what I'm saying, Rob? So, sadly, that's that, the story of Marvin Gaye. Do you hear the one he was supposed to um, perform in front of a... Uh, a duchess in uh, the UK, and he didn't want to show up. And they say, if you don't show up, it'll be the end of your career, which it was in the BBC document. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. And then yeah, when yeah. show up, she already left. And he said, oh, she, she should have waited 15 minutes more. See me. <laughs> he didn't give a shit. Okay. And, and you know, he started yeah, he getting... Was he was getting naked at some his taking all his clothes off. That's dur how During up. the last tour, during sexual healing, he would wear a bathrobe. Okay, and then he would take it off, and he'd be in like a speedo on yeah. stage. Okay, so he was like, a, you know, I guess ex exposing himself for, for, you know, there was some kind of mental thing that he was working out at that time. Yeah, he was stage. You know, uh, it's sad. You know, I mean, a lot of look, look. I mean, we've all known people that do a little too much coke, and how paranoid yeah. they get that affects your thinking. Yeah. You know, he really was doing like insane amounts of cocaine. Yeah. And that just messes up your thinking. Think about it. From being millions and millions of dollars to pretty much almost dying penniless until later on with probably the foundation. Probably, he probably made more money dead than alive. Think about that. Yeah. I mean, his estate had to work out everything with the IRS eventually. I'm sure there was a, a bit of a mess with that. Yeah. Uh, I'm not too sure exactly what went down i think they tried to be private with that yeah. i remember it being a big deal but uh for instance like when uh trying to think uh well remember we talked about with mark Bolin when he died you know that was a big mess with his estate yeah uh, you know bob marley of course was a big mess with his estate uh sammy davis jr had a big mess with his estate yeah he, he owed a lot of, he owed a he left his wife like a whole shitload of back taxes to pay. I don't even know if she even had any money after it was all done. Wow. So, you know, 
it's important to have your your shit in order at the end of your life. But yeah, I mean, you know, I guess if you're 45, you don't think it's the end of your life, like Marvin. No, like Marvin. You know. Anyway, so that's what I got for you today, man. Hope I did great, great episode. Yeah, good stuff, man. A lot of good stuff. <laughs> but other than that, Mike, thank you very much for all the information. And uh, remember, don't get drunk. Okay. Get, get drunk. Get, get locked up. up. See you next week. Take care, people. Bye.